Our age is the first in the history of the world that has universally denied human guilt. Everyone today is immaculately conceived. It used to be the unique privilege of our Blessed Lady. When she appeared at Lourdes, she said, I am the Immaculate Conception. Now we are only sick, but we are not sinners. Dostoyevsky, the great Russian novelist of the last century, foresaw this. He said, a time is coming when men will say, there is no sin, there is no guilt. There is only hunger. And they will come crying and fawning to our feet, saying, give us bread. The two escapes from guilt are first, we have become patience instead of penitence. We stretch ourselves on psychoanalytic couches instead of bending knees and pardon and in forgiveness. Guilt is considered abnormal, and the tendency even to defer the confession of children, lest it give them a sense of guilt. A child, even from the age of two, understands a broken relationship with his parent. Just let the mother or father say, I don't love you anymore. And that child understands a broken relation, which is the nature of sin, not just the breaking of a law. So guilt today is considered abnormal. But it is interesting that Shakespeare, who lived four centuries ago, wrote about two effects of sin in his tragedy of Macbeth and Lady Macbeth. They both contrived to murder the king. Macbeth developed a psychosis. Lady Macbeth, and neuroses. These were the effects of guilt. You see, guilt can be real and yet have an abnormal manifestation. When there is an abnormal manifestation, the tendency today is to deny there's guilt. Macbeth had a normal guilt, murder. It came out as a psychosis. He asked, What is this that I see before me? A dagger? With the handle toward my turn to my hand? There was no dagger. And his wife, Lady Macbeth, she washed her hands every quarter of an hour. She thought the blood spots were on her hand. 
are not all the waters of the seven seas enough to wash this blood incarnadine from my hand? This neurotic manifestation often appears today in excessive hand-washing when it is soul-washing that is required. So one of the escapes from guilt and sin today is to say that we are only patients with abnormal manifestations of guilt. And the second is rationalization. And this is the most common of all. Here David is one day on the roof of his home. He looks over at an adjoining penthouse and sees Bathsheba. He invites her over to see his etchings. He loves her wise, not wisely, but too well, and in due course of time, there is a child. The husband of Bathsheba is at war, Uriah. He calls Uriah back from war and tells him to go home to his wife, to blame paternity onto the husband. Uriah answers, I am at war. I cannot go back to my wife. David gets him drunk, and Uriah sleeps at the front door of David. Then David tells the general, some men must die in battle, so send him to the front rank. And Uriah is killed. It doesn't bother David. To die in battle is norm. But months later, the prophet Nathan comes to David and presents an economic or moral or sociological problem, social justice. Ah, this is the great field of rationalization. And Nathan said to David, there was a poor man who had one ewe lamb. A rich neighbor came and stole the ewe lamb and made a feast for his friends. David said, for this, he shall surrender his life and return fourfold for the ewe that he has stolen. All justice. And Nathan said to him, Thou art the man. You stole the ewe lamb of Uriah. David then saw his guilt, though he had rationalized it. And then he wrote the famous psalm, Miserere May, which we know so well. But rationalization is the second escape. Though we deny guilt and sin, it still persists. And because our retreat is built around Christ, the priest's victim, we ask the question, how is sin forgiven? How is it blotted out? Certainly not by sand, as do the Muslims. Not by having it explained away. 
not by blaming it on to mothers and fathers. How is sin forgiven? What is the biblical basis of expiation of guilt? You will find it in the 22nd verse of the ninth chapter of Hebrews. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. No remission of sin without the shedding of blood. There must be a victimhood somewhere. Now let us study the scarlet cord of forgiveness. I call it a scarlet cord because that was what Rahab, the prostitute, was told to let down her window when the Israelites came to take Jericho, Jericho, and Joshua and Caleb would see it and save her and her family. Mark of blood. We go back then to the beginning of the human race to study the story of the scarlet cord. Adam and Eve sin, and they find themselves naked. When they were in the state of grace, there was an aura, a glow about them. And when that was lost, then they appeared naked. The less inner glow of grace there is in any of us, the more we have to compensate for it by externals. So some go in for excessive luxury in the world, in a kind of atonement and making up for their inner nakedness. Adam and Eve found themselves naked. Nakedness is exposure. They covered up their shame with fig leaves. The fig leaves dried up. And they were ashamed again. How was the shame of Adam and Eve covered? What does the scripture say? Read the 21st verse of the third chapter of Genesis. And you have the answer where great wisdom is hidden in single lines of Scripture. And this is the what we read. The Lord God made tunics of skins for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Notice three things. 
one God did something. Two, it was done vicariously by the shedding of the blood of an animal, because otherwise there would be no skins. God does something. He does it vicariously by the shedding of blood. That's how their shame was covered. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Then we have Cain and Abel. The sacrifice of Cain was rejected and the sacrifice of Abel was accepted. Why this difference? It was because Cain was offering a technological sacrifice. He was offering something that did not cost him anything. He was offering the fruits of the earth, and the earth was already cursed. And Abel had caught the primitive tradition. And Abel offered a blood sacrifice. And so Cain went into the land of Nod. And he belongs to that whole tradition that will have a religion, that will have a kind of an offering, but one that does not involve the shedding of blood. He was afraid when he left, afraid that he might be murdered. And God said he would put a brand upon Cain that would prevent him from being murdered. And what was the brand that God put upon Cain? Very likely it was the blood of his brother Abel. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Then following the scarlet cord, we come to Abraham. Abraham leaves the land of Ur, and comes to a land which the Lord appoints. And God said, you will have a progeny as numerous as the sands of the sea and the stars of the heaven. This was God's promise. But when Abraham was 80 and Sarah was 70, they had no children. Sarah said, consort with our Egyptian maid. So Abraham consorted with the Egyptian maid. And from that union was born Ishmael. whom the Muslims claim as their origin and founder. But this was not the son of promise. For God had said to Abraham and Sarah that there would be a son. 
when Abraham is a hundred and past the time of bearing, and, and Sarah was ninety, beyond the time of conceiving, God said, Now you will have a son. God often delays, but he never fails. Sarah laughed at the idea of having a son. God said, you laugh? She said, I did not laugh. The son was born and he was called laughter. But that's the meaning of Isaac. And then begins that division of Isaac and Ishmael. St. Paul said in the epistle of the Galatians that they will fight and battle until the end of time. Abraham now as a son, as they were both rejuvenated. And then God said to Abraham, offer your son. Offer him and sacrifice. It's very common today to say that obedience must always be rational. Was this rational? Abraham was praised eleven times in the eleventh chapter of the epistle of the Hebrews for his faith. What a man of faith he was. So he bound wood on the back of his son Isaac. In three days they climbed out up Mount Moriah. For three days by intent. The son Isaac was dead. We see here, indeed, the allegory of the Heavenly Father ready to sacrifice his son. And when finally Abraham and Isaac are on top of the mount, Isaac said to his father, Where is the lamb? And that question was caught in that mountain air and floated over that region and floated down through the centuries. Where is the Lamb? Where is the Lamb? Where is the Lamb? And Abraham answered in faith, God will provide. And when the sword was lifted, it was stayed, and the animal of sacrifice was provided. Something done by God, vicariously, the shedding of blood. But here you have the particular emphasis on the vicarious. Following the scarlet cord, we now come to the thraldom of the Israelites in Egypt. Moses works miracles which Pharaoh refuses to accept. Moses demands over and over again, let my people go. Father will let them go out a few miles. 
Or let them go but not bring the animals of sacrifice. And finally God said, Tonight the firstborn of every Egyptian, man and beast, will be killed. What a terrible judgment. A judgment on a land of unbelief. And God told Moses what to do. And in the book of Exodus, we read, You shall have your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, your staff on your hand, and you must eat the lamb in urgent haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that night I shall pass through the land of Egypt and kill every firstborn of man and beast. Thus will I execute judgment, I the Lord, against all the gods of Egypt. And as for you, the blood will be a sign on the house in which you are. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. The mortal blow shall I shall not touch you when I strike the land of Egypt. In other words, God told him to offer up the Paschal Lamb. Take some of the blood. Sprinkle it over the lintels of the door, not on the floor where one walks on blood. For blood is sacred. And the angel that destroys the firstborn of man and beast will see the blood of that house and will pass over that house. They were saved only by the shedding of blood. So the sacrifice of the Passover lamb continued and continued and renewed in an eminent way when they finally crossed over into the Jordan. Then came other symbols in the Old Testament. When the Israelites were disobedient, they were bitten by poisonous serpents. God said to Moses, Make a serpent of brass. Hang it up on the crotch of a tree. And all who look upon that serpent of brass will be healed of the poisonous bite. There is absolutely nothing in a brass serpent that will cure a snake bite. But those who looked upon it were healed. What did it mean? There are only two examples in sacred scripture that apply both to the devil and to Christ indicating that the Antichrist will be something like him in his compassion to win over people. One is the Lion of Judah and the other is the Serpent. When our blessed Lord came to this earth and he was visited by that man who was seen only at night in the Gospels, Nicodemus, 
Our Lord said, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. In other words, that brass serpent was a token and a symbol of Christ being lifted up on the cross. That brass serpent looked just exactly like the serpent that poisoned the Israelites. But there was no poison in it. And those who were obedient and looked upon it in faith were healed of the poisonous bite. So our blessed Lord is lifted up on the crotch of a tree. He looks just exactly like a criminal. He looks as if he were full of sin and guilt and poison. But he's not. As the brass serpent was without poison, so Christ the victim was without poison of sin. And all who look upon him are healed. Then there was the remote preparation of the scapegoat. On the Day of Atonement, two goats were brought before the high priest. One was chosen by lot, which will you that I release unto you. One of the goats is killed. The blood of the slain goat is then sprinkled by the high priest on the other goat. But only after the high priest had laid his hands over the goat and laid upon that goat all the sins of Israel. Then when the goat was sprinkled with blood, he was carried out into the desert. The scapegoat he bore away his sins. They existed no more. And thus we escape, but through blood. That was the shedding of the blood. And God is very careful to preserve this lesson of the shedding of blood and the fact that there is one sacrifice. And now instead of explaining, I'm going to let you decide. I'm going to read two passages of sacred scripture. The scenes are 38 years apart. The problem in each is identical. The Israelites are without water. The first scene is at Rephidim. 38 years later, it is at Kadesh. I will read you the first scene without comment, then read you the second, and see if you can discover the mystery. In Exodus... 17, 
the cattle and the people were thirsting. And they protested to Moses, and Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with these people? In a moment they will be stoning me. The Lord answered, Go forward ahead of the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel, and the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. You will find me waiting for you there, by the rock in Horeb. Strike the rock, water will pour out of it, and the people shall drink. Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. And they were all supplied with water. Thirty-eight years later, at Kadesh, the people again protested to Moses, If only we had perished when our brothers perished in the presence of the Lord. Why have you brought us out into the wilderness to die with our beasts? And Moses and Aaron came forward in front of the assembly to the tent of the presence. And they fell prostrate, and the glory of God appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses and said, Take a staff, and then with Aaron your brother assemble all the community, and in front of them all speak to the rock, and it will yield water. Thus you will produce water for the community out of the rock, for them and their beasts to drink. Moses left the presence of the Lord with the staff as he had commanded him. Then he and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock, and he said to them, Listen to me, you rebels. Must we get water out of this rock for you? Moses raised his hand and struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out in abundance, and they all drank, men and beasts. What is the difference between the two stories? It has to do with redemption and the shedding of blood. And the penalty we shall speak of in a moment. At Rapidine, God said, strike the rock. At Kadesh, God said, speak to the rock. Moses struck it again. Christ the rock is struck only once on Calvary. There's only one death. No other name by which we may be saved. Only one Calvary, one redemption. Moses was implying that there's another. After Christ is struck, then heaven is opened. Then we have intercession. Then we speak to God. But Moses struck the rock again, and God said, For thus, you will not enter the promised land. Moses begged him three times. God said, You will not enter.
something similar appears in an ordination ceremony. When the two sons of Aaron are ordained, And what happens here, actually, happened on the day of ordination. It's very brief. But you have to know your scripture well to discover its meaning. I will read it for you in the NEB. Now, Nadab and Abihu, sons of Aaron, took their fire pans and put fire in them, threw incense on the fire, and presented the fire, illicit fire, which he had not commanded. And fire came out before the Lord and destroyed them, and they died in the presence of the Lord. And Moses then said to Aaron, This is what the Lord meant when he said, Among those who approached me, I must be treated as holy. And Aaron was dumbfounded. And Moses then said to the cousins, Take out the bodies, and Aaron, you stay here. Very brief. Why does God strike dead two newly ordained priests, the sons of Aaron? Well, to understand it, permit a brief parenthesis. Remember, this is in the tabernacle in the desert. In the tabernacle of the desert, which was only about 60 feet long and 30 feet wide, badger skin on the outside did not look very beautiful. But inside was the house of God, symbol of the incarnation meek and humble of spirit, the human nature of Christ. As you came in to the tabernacle, there was a labor. It is the only thing in the whole tabernacle for which God did not give a measurement. Everything else is measured, and generally in halves. For example, the Holy of Holies was three and a half cubits by one and a half cubits, indicating, I think, imperfection. Why no measurement for the labor? Because not all of us need the same kind of washing. Some have more sins than others. Immediately in front of that was the altar of sacrifice. Over here was the bread of perpetual presence. On the other side the golden candlestick, the only light in the temple. I am the light of the world. Here was the altar of incense. Here was the veil beyond the Holy of Holies containing the tables of the law, the rod of Aaron, and some of the manna. Now, all that we read about was 
that these two priests, when they were ordained, offered an illicit fire. That's all. But when you read the New Testament, the Old Testament, carefully, you discover that God gave the law, and the meaning of it is very clear, that no fire is ever to be lighted at the altar of intercession except from the altar of sacrifice. The same lesson as Moses was taught. Intercession follows sacrifice. Victimhood. These two young men said, what hundreds are saying today, we'll just not have a sacrifice. We'll not have a cross. We'll just have intercession direct. And God said, you're dead. Carry the bodies out. Believe me, we're still under that law. So without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Now we come to the first Passover of our Lord's public life. John the Baptist is baptizing at the Jordan. A mile or two from the Jordan is Jericho. And then the 2,300-foot ascent from Jericho up to Jerusalem. And because it is the Passover season, every Jewish family had to bring a paschal lamb. Red and purple ribbons were tied about the lamb, one year old, without blemish, unspotted. Josephus, who tells us about sacrifices in the temple of Jerusalem about 30 years after the death of our Lord, said that in one Passover day there were 230,000 lambs that were offered. The Jewish religion was a veritable hemorrhage of blood. And all the while, from the day of Abraham on Mount Moriah, where is the lamb? Where is the lamb? Where is the lamb? John the Baptist preaches. He sees these little paschal lambs being carried up that road, looks out over the eager crowd that's listening to him, calls for a second, and then cries out, Look! The Lamb of God! The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Where is the lamb? The lamb had come. And the lamb was sacrificed on the altar of sacrifice. And at the very moment that he was sacrificed, 
and his heart was pierced by a lance. At that very second, this sixty-foot-high veil of the tabernacle of the temple of Jerusalem, a beautiful veil of gold and purple and hyacinth, was rent in twain, not from bottom to top, for a man could do that, but from top to bottom. And that holy place that the high priest was allowed to enter only once a year after the sprinkling of blood was now disclosed to everyone. But it was unimportant in comparison to another veil that was rent, the veil of Christ on Calvary. And when the veil of his flesh was rent, blood and water poured out, and with this sprinkling of blood, the Holy of Holies was opened. Not the Holy of Holies of type in the tabernacle, but the Holy of Holies of the very heart of God. And in the epistle of the Hebrews, we read of that beautiful mystery. So now, my friends, the blood of Jesus makes us free to enter boldly into the sanctuary. By the new living way which he has opened for us through the curtain which is his flesh. We have, moreover, a great priest set over the household of God. So let us make our approach in sincerity of heart and full assurance of faith, our guilty hearts sprinkled clean, our bodies washed with pure water. Let us be firm and unswerving in the confession of our hope for the giver of the promise may be trusted. And thus there is verified in type and in reality. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. When we give the people communion, we are sprinkling them with blood, as Moses sprinkled the people with the blood of the Lamb. He says, this is the blood of the old covenant, and we say when we give them communion, this is the blood of the new covenant, the new law. Every time our hands are lifted in absolution, it's the blood of Christ. When we go to confession, it's the blood of Christ that drips. There's no sin in the world forgiven without this blood. This is the mystery of our faith. And thus we're brought back again to Christ, the priest, the victim, the mass. Sacrifice. No intercession without sacrifice. And the hope of it all is that if we had never sinned, we never could call Jesus Savior.